The following message is a teaching by Dr. Jason DeRoshi, Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. More information about Jason can be found at deroshi-meyer.org. This is our second week in the book of Proverbs. I realized that I couldn't get to you today all that I wanted to pass along, so I simply have handed you my notes. Uh, the last two pages are simply um, material that you'll be able to take away and read on, reflect specific issues related to the biblical vision of spanking children. Um, so we're going to lead up to that. We're going to look at the big, big picture of family, um, family relationships in the book of Proverbs. This book is loaded with instruction for how husbands and wives and dads and moms and children are to interrelate one with another. And the building block of community is the family. So if the family breaks, the community will ultimately break down. Everything starts here in this core unit. Now all of us come to the table with different kinds of perspectives um, different types of experiences. Some of us would testify to mass evidences of God's grace through our parents as they raised us. And others of us would be looking back uh, with broken hearts because you never had any model of what a godly husband or what a godly wife should look like, what good discipline was, because you never received it. Whether because it was hands-off and your parents just let you run and do what you would, or because you experienced um, extreme abuses that are not at all what the Bible is talking about. Proverbs is a parenting manual. It's a manual for understanding how the household should be operating day in and day out. And so to that end, um, I'm going to pray one more time and ask God to Grace us with help. Lord, open up, this, open up this word to us. Help me be a guide today. I thank you that you care about letting us know truth and that you haven't left us hanging, that you've given us so much. I pray that you'd help me as I work through a fair amount of material that you would help me work with a shepherd's heart. Grant me eyes to see need. Recall for me uh, key examples that need to be shared. May solid communication happen, communication that guides and shapes in paths of righteousness for your namesake. For the glory of Jesus, I pray. Amen. All right, one of the questions that was left last week before we move too fast ahead was, are there any Proverbs at all that are absolute? Any Proverbs at all that are true all the time? Because I noted that Proverbs are generalizations, generalizations that are usually true in most instances, but that Proverbs are not promises. So we walked through the preamble, the prologue, and we were assessing this proverbial collection. From the human perspective, within the context of Proverbs, here's how I defined wisdom, the pursuit of understanding and of preserving right order. Wisdom is not simply something that we have in our heads. Something, uh, wisdom is the actual working it out in daily life. It's our desire to preserve God's right order in the world, all under the fear of God. So a proverb is a tool given by God to help walk in the ways of wisdom. And it is short, memorable generalizations that are usually true. The briefer the statement, though the less precise it can be. 
So I talked about generalizations, and now the question is, are there any absolute proverbs? And there certainly are. And so I'm going to ask you to read a series of proverbs with me and try to get your hands around what would make a proverb true in every instance, not just some. And some of these proverbs are going to be true in every instance, I believe, and others are not. And see if you can see the common thread. Are there any absolute or always true proverbs? The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. Always true or not always true? Not always true. Unless we're thinking eternally, right? Then we could reason through it, but so much of Proverbs seems to be very stationed in the here and now, the two paths of life in the present, walking with God in the present, and this would be a generally stated proverb, that the fear of the Lord is generally going to put you in a place of positive productivity, whereas wickedness is going to generally lead you in a not-so-good direction. How about this one? Those of crooked heart are an abomination to the Lord, but those of blameless ways are His delight. Can you think of any situation where that proverb would not be true? No. So the proverb in red is... Something's distinct about it. What is it that's distinct about it that would give it an absolute flavor? Another proverb, disaster pursues sinners, but righteous are rewarded with good. If we're forced to focus just on the here and now, we've got to say, it's not always going to work. The plans of the heart belong to man, but the answer of the tongue is from the Lord. This sage has a very massive view of the sovereignty of God. So, how would we have to be assessing this? Man might decide he's going to do something today or tomorrow, and yet God's the one who holds the today and tomorrow. The answer of the tongue is from the Lord. I think that would always be true. So I make it red. The Lord has made everything for its purpose, even the wicked for the day of trouble. Is there anything in this world that isn't purposeful, that is somehow a random accident? No. Nothing. Gray hair is a crown of glory. It is gained in a righteous life. Always true, yeah. There's a certain generation talking right now, right? Yeah. (laughs) I'm slowly getting there. So this one, Proverbs 16, 31, isn't always true. There's some gray-haired folks that are desperately wicked. Many of the plans in the mind of man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Always true or not always true? Always true. No wisdom, no understanding, no counsel can avail against the Lord. Always true. So, if you were to try to consider what trait allowed certain proverbs to be always true and others to not be true, what would you, what was the common trait? The character of God. So what would make Proverbs related to the character of God always true? Because God never changes. We change. Our circumstances change. 
We are fallible and fickle, but he is unswerving and unchanging. So the general rule is this. Those Proverbs that focus on God's character and actions are absolute. For God never changes. Proverbs and the family. We're just going to look at a host of different Proverbs and see what, just get a glimpse of how this book talks to families. Order in the universe. God created the world in wisdom. And we align ourselves in, with God's order, His structure, when we live under the fear of the Lord. Families are a key unit wherein right order is supposed to be evidenced. Right order in headship, right order in sonship, right order in the entire household group living underneath God and not as if he doesn't exist. An excellent wife is the crown of her husband, but she who brings shame is like rottenness in his bones. As we work through these, I'm just going to read them. Some of them I'll pause and give meditation on, but I just I want you to um, let yourself pause and assess. Assess the soul. Where am I at as I look through these Proverbs? Or let it move you to prayer because you know of families or your own that isn't lining up with right order. A son who is not where he should be. A brother who is running rather than submitting. A dad who is not treasuring his spouse, his children. Let it stir your heart, move you to prayer and assessment. An excellent wife. Next week, uh, two weeks from now rather, uh, Lord willing, I'm going to um, just take a few minutes to ponder. There's two spots in, in Proverbs where the excellent wife is mentioned. And it's here in Proverbs 12, and then again in Proverbs 31. And we're going to open up that day just looking at Proverbs 31 in a very, I believe, fresh way. And it's a very hopeful way for ladies in this room, and I hope it will be clarifying for husbands or husband wannabes in this room. An excellent wife is a crown of her husband. I could attribute, I think, in my adult life, Teresa and I will celebrate 20 years, June 11, 20 years of marriage, and I would say that all my successes here are simply overflow of her loving me well. I'm able to flourish in my workplace because home is a place of peace. All throughout my schooling, 11 years of our marriage, I was in school. And she never resented my studies. She encouraged my ministry training, and now she encourages my ministry, an excellent wife. But she who brings shame is like rottenness in the husband's bones. A hot-tempered man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger quiets contention. Sadly, I've been on both sides of that. I've seen the fruit of quiet and gentle responses. And I've seen the tension that rises all across the board in my ever-increasing full house I don't think it's increasing anymore, uh, unless we had a pet. But Contention can be quieted by a gentle response. Slow to speak, slow, quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Better is a dry morsel with quiet than a house full of feasting and strife. Have you ever felt that? You really don't need all the, all, the, uh, all the tools or all the toys 
to have a peaceful and happy home. A foolish son is ruined to his father, and a wife's quarreling is a continual dripping of rain. House and wealth are inherited from fathers, but a prudent wife is from the Lord. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man, who can find? Words, lots of words. But will you be faithful and true to the promises you made to your spouse and before your God? The commitments that you make to your children? It's better to live in a corner of the housetop than in a house shared with a quarrelsome wife. We have to translate some of our Proverbs. It's very obvious from Proverbs 21.9, they didn't have a house in Minneapolis. Flat roof, you can hang out up there. No 412 pitches, no three feet of snow that needs to be shoveled off. So you've got to translate it. But it's not hard to translate a proverb like that and work it into our space and time. How about order and sexuality? All throughout Scripture, there is a conviction that one fleshness matters. That starting from the garden, when Adam declares, this is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh, he, call, he, he speaks to the woman, his wife, whom he will name Eve, he speaks about her in third person. God's the only one on the scene. The only other one on the scene. So I think he's talking to God. And of this girl, he says, This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Declaring, I think, like Paul declares in his exegesis of the passage, when you bite your tongue, you don't knock out your tooth. When you stub your toe, You don't take out your hacksaw and cut it off and say, you're never going to hurt me again. But how many husbands, when the wife offends, treat her as if she is not part of his body, but as if something that he can just throw away? This is now bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. I will love her as if she's my own. And the key symbol of that intimacy the depth of the intimacy, the the concord of relationship, the one flesh reality is the gift of sex. And as we progress through Scripture, we get to Deuteronomy, and for the first time, actually it happens as early as Exodus 34, Israel's lack of covenant loyalty to God is portrayed as Sexual promiscuity. And then you get to the book of Hosea, where it's just unpacked as clear as can be. That this sexual intimacy in marriage is a pointer to a greater relationship. So that it's not just a matter of you sinning against God. It's not just cold sin, cold lawlessness. No, what's happening is fornication. You're doing something to to the relationship that is, at its core, contrasting to what it should be. And then we get to Ephesians chapter 5, and the one fleshness is unpacked, and what it ultimately points to is a head and a helper that come together in ultimate intimacy. And that head is Christ, and the bride is His church. Sexuality matters because the glory of God matters. Because in this intimacy, we are putting God on display. Glimpses at a computer screen that objectify woman, all for your taking gratification, is the glory of God is at stake. You're saying this type of intimacy, what God made a man and a woman for as they come together, doesn't matter to put on display the greatness of God's covenant love for His people and the covenant response of his people for their king.
It doesn't matter. Proverbs takes a different view. It does matter. Sexuality matters intensely. Rather than just saying, don't get promiscuous, Proverbs goes out of its way to motivate by portraying consequences. Consequences of cherishing your wife and the beauty that can come about in the bedroom and the consequences of going against your family tie or someone else's family tie that's already been created and the destruction that can come through that kind of sin and pain. And sadly, so many of you know what that feels like. Son, you will be delivered from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words, who forsakes the companion of her youth and forgets the covenant of her God. For her house sinks down to death, her paths to the departed. None who go to her come back, nor do they regain the paths of life. For the lips of the forbidden woman drip honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. And now, O sons, listen to me, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house." Just hear the warning. This father, this mother, loves his or her child. This is destruction. It brings so much pain, so much hurt, that ultimately climaxes in death. Don't go this way, he says. But do go this way. Already, I've got a 10-year-old son that I'm trying to shape to understand the beauty of what I'm about to read in Proverbs 5. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? No. Let them be for yourself alone, not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. That is beauty. God is not a withholding God. He's a giver of beautiful, wonderful gifts, including sex, in the right contexts. Otherwise, it's death. But in the right context, it's something that can be lastingly enjoyable. Always intoxicated with her love. Now this is a dad talking to his son. And if he's living in the same world that I am, he recognizes that this level of intoxication can't last all the time. I mean, there's friction in the home, and the kid knows it. He's lived with his mom and his dad. He's seen the tensions. So this always seems to me to be a a lastingness. You keep going back. You keep getting your life filled. You keep envisioning and praying that God would just heighten and awaken those desires and and renew the relationship. You keep committing yourself to not be a taker, but a receiver and a giver. And then every time you enter into the bedroom to enjoy that level of intimacy, what you're doing is Reinvoking your wedding vows, reigniting, retestifying to your commitment to this girl and, and your commitment to this man. I mean, we're coming up here on Song of Songs. It's, it's right around the corner. I don't know if we'll hit it 
this spring or whether we'll open up next fall with it. We'll see. Be a great way to kick off the fall, wouldn't it? <laughs> and then our class size will double by May. <laughs> it, I, I'll just pause here. It, it really was funny for Teresa and I. Um, living in communal contexts, I go to, off to graduate school, Gordon-Conwell Seminary, and all of us are packed into these um, campus apartments. And then a nor'easter would come, and we'd get dumped on two feet of snow, and all classes would be canceled. Therese and I would hop in the car. All the roads are closed, and we'd just, I mean, why did they cancel everything? They've already plowed, and we would go up and join New Hampshire. But we would come back, and, I mean, it was like, okay, nine months from now, all these babies started to be born, you know, cancel classes and turn up the heat, and it just happened. So, can a man carry fire next to his chest and his clothes not be burned? Or can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be scorched? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. None who touches her will go unpunished. Hear that. That's God declaring his actions. And that's one of those absolute realities, right? He who commits adultery lacks sense. He who does it destroys himself. What is this saying? Adultery is like playing with fire, and you can't do it without being burned. And it won't only burn you, it'll burn your home. Your children will feel the heat, and it will scorch them, and indeed scar them forever. But oh, what a, what a gracious, kind God we have. The power of the gospel, able to intrude, that he can actually redeem brokenness. My biological father was gone before my mom even knew she was pregnant. And now, 40 years later, God's allowed me to begin a relationship with this man. I didn't even know he knew I existed, but I found out that he had met me. He was gone. He came back to visit, and he showed up, and he was there for a day and a half. He held me, weeks old. He's carried a picture of me for 40 years, wondering if I would ever be able to find him. And God let that happen in the last year. And it's been a a beautiful reunion, and I, I see it as a gift of God's kindness. It doesn't always work that way. Where... The relationship is even possible. But I'm experiencing the kindness of the Lord. And any of those kindnesses are blood-bought, I think. They're blood-bought. We receive the kindness and it's supposed to move us to awe of God. And if we don't let the kindnesses of God move us to awe, then we're storing up for ourselves wrath on the day to come. Because that kindness of God will be exhibit A in the final judgment day of saying, I gave you such kindness and you didn't see it. Order and communication. This is, I mean, this is level one counseling, right? But uh, we, we struggle right off the bat. This is, so hard to talk well because in the seat of our soul is selfishness and then that selfishness just rises when we get shaken and, and all, out comes all kinds of stuff we don't even know is in there. And it, it shows up in our tongues, right? It shows up in our words. Put away from you crooked speech and put devious talk from you. A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. Just pause and pray for grace. Because you know this week you're going to need a soft answer. Maybe even right after church. And just pray that God would graciously give you what you need. How important it is to morning by morning get filled up in the right place 
so that when you get shaken, the right things come out of you. I need it every single day, and I know when I'm not filled up. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. To make an apt answer is a joy to a man, a word in season, how good it is. If one curses his father or his mother, his lamp will be put out in utter darkness. We're going to talk about this shortly. This is talking about a level of failure to heed mom and dad's voice that is at the extreme level. It's the kind of antagonism against mom and dad that all of a sudden is not only hurting the, local, the family unit, but has the danger of influencing negatively the course of the community. And as soon as that happens, parental discipline becomes null and it enters into the realm of the government. We'll see how that works. It's better to live in a desert land than with a quarrelsome and fretful woman. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold in a setting of silver. So, wisdom in relationship, wisdom in sexuality, wisdom in communication. How much we need Christ our wisdom, right? We need to fall back on all that He has secured for us in our justification. And we need to embrace all that He has secured for us in our sanctification. To allow him as the embodiment of wisdom. The one who lived in right order with his father perfectly. To not only be put in front of us so that God is looking through all that Christ has done and then looking at us through that, but also allow this Christ to not simply be our pardon, but to become our pattern and our power for living wisely. And all of that is purchased. When he pardoned us, he purchased power. And he supplied a pattern. Yes. So, reconciling the calls to a guarded tongue up against the forced silence that is often made of Christians in many, many contexts. And how a forced silence, forced, that is, there are certain powers over us that are declaring us, you can't pray in this setting. You can't talk about such things in this context. I'm thinking about your own story that you've shared with me, transitioning from um, top dog in your company, where you prayed every week with your people, to when you... um, allowed yourself to be bought out, and now you've got a boss who said, okay, you're overseeing the meetings, but you're not allowed to pray anymore. And many of you face those kind of tensions. How do we reconcile this? It, it seems to me that nothing changes on the wisdom side. There are times where, because of wisdom, we recognize, I need to... actually say, um, I'm going to obey God in this moment rather than men, and the obedience that 
I, the where I'm applying it is that it's, it's compelling me to actually share the gospel right now. It's compelling me to pause in, a, in the context of this setting and actually ask this man, can I pray for you? Whereas there might be levels of discouragement coming down, and, and there may even be points where it's actually illegal. But wisdom is saying, no, right now is the opportune time. And I will not let the pressures that are wrong compel me otherwise. Right. But then there's other instances where wisdom is saying, okay, I could speak right now, but I'm looking out and I'm seeing a bunch of fools. And I'm not going to give a pearl to a swine. And... So in this moment, even though there is truth that could be told, it's, not, it's obvious that it's, it's not going to carry the weight that a pearl, the value of this word, is not going to be appreciated right now. And so wisdom says, I will hold it. And the challenge is not becoming complacent for us as believers. Living in a world that is becoming increasingly um, top-down, telling us what we can't do. That, that there's this sense in which so many of the freedoms that many of us grew up with are increasingly being taken away. And the challenge will become um, not becoming complacent, but being willing, if called upon, to, to step out and speak up. Very good. So the, a connection between the wisdom and the fear of the Lord versus a fear of man. That always we want to be operating underneath, God, I'm willing to do and willing to talk whenever you want me to do that. And I want to do this for your glory, not for my own glory. And there are times where our speaking will... Um, Result in benefit, and there's times where our speaking will res- not result in benefit. Last week, I I noted this proverb. Proverbs. Let me just close down some things here. This, this proverb I, I pointed to last week that shows the tension, whether we speak or whether we don't speak. Answer a fool according to his folly, lest you be like him yourself. Speak up. Address the issue. But answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be... Sorry, answer not a fool. Don't speak up. That's what it says. Answer... In contrast, answer a fool according to his folly, lest he be wise in his own eyes. So if you don't speak up sometimes, you're going to be put in the same camp as everyone else. And yet, in other instances, you don't speak up, you shouldn't speak up, lest... You yourself participate in his foolishness. So that's how the Proverbs are just calling for this hard life of wisdom. This isn't checking, oh, I did that, I did that, I did that. Wisdom doesn't let us sit there. It's a much more squirmy, uncomfortable context, wisdom is. Because it's calling for you and I to be responsible and radically God-dependent full of prayer, moment by moment. This encounter comes up. Someone comes into your office or a phone call comes or all hell breaks loose up in your children's bedroom. And in that moment, you're being called upon to pause and and pray and seek wisdom. And the way the wisdom looks in certain contexts is not always the same. All right.
disciplining children. This is about right order in God's world. This isn't about I'll save that comment. Book of Hebrews. Remember in Hebrews chapter 12, the Lord begins to unpack how we're going to become holy, and the path of holiness is substantially through the process of discipline. He starts out the discussion by quoting Proverbs, which suggests to me right off the bat that Proverbs matters for Christians. Here's what it says. Consider, sorry, here's what it says. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Now that should sound like a fighter verse. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline. Horrible. Or be weary of his reproof, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves like a father, the son in whom he delights. Proverbs 3, 11 and 12. So, Hebrews begins that way, and then it continues. It is for discipline, unto discipline, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplined us for our good." that we may share His holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Read Proverbs and understand more as a father is supposed to discipline their child. This is what God does with us all the time. Shaping our character. This is about education, not punishment. Discipline. So, what I want to pull from, my friend Paul wrote an article in the Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society where he summarized the view of discipline in Proverbs. And the way that he packaged it, I found extremely helpful. So I just want to unpack it for you in the way that he has. Proverbs doesn't... Well, when it talks about discipline, it's all thrown together. But if you take everything it has to say, you can begin to see that not all the discipline is the same. Spanking is not the only type of discipline. In fact, it is the very last step. The parent doesn't want to arrive there if they don't have to. So what does it look like? There's actually four levels of discipline in the book of Proverbs. I'm going to walk through them. You have a chart that you may just want to keep your eyes on. The chart fills in the four levels, and includes all the texts in Proverbs that support each level. Let's walk through each of these now in the time that we have remaining. Number one, level one is that a parent has the responsibility to teach their children what right behavior looks like. And it comes in three different ways. Number one, parents are to encourage proper behavior. Hear, my son, your father's instruction. Forsake not your mother's teaching, for there are graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. Like a wreath that would be crowned. This is a testimony of honor to heed mom and dad's words. Or like a giant pendant around the neck, a a gold medal, or perhaps something a woman would wear in her wedding day. A sign of honor, a sign of beauty 
is heeding mom and dad's voice. My son, if you receive my words, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding, yes, yes, if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, if you seek it like silver and search for it for hidden as it search for it as for hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of your God. Wisdom is of highest value in Proverbs. And a mom and dad need to make that clear for their child. Just encourage them in the path of wisdom. Blessed is the one who finds wisdom, the one who gets understanding. For the gain from her is better than gain from silver, and her profit better than gold. She's more precious than jewels, and nothing you desire can compare with her. The beginning of wisdom is this. Get wisdom. That's the beginning. Get it. Okay. Get wisdom. Whatever you get, get insight. Prize her highly. She will exalt you. She will honor you if you embrace her. These are just basic encouragements. This is the path that is good for you. Number two, inform of improper behavior. Proverbs would encourage parents not just to say, this is the best path, but to actually to define what the not best path is. Honor your father and mother. Children, obey your parents. That shapes the boundaries of the circle of blessing. You're going to clarify what it looks like to live inside the blessing, what honor and obedience looks like inside the circle, but you're also going to characterize what life outside the circle looks like as well. My son, if sinners entice you, then do not consent. If they say, hey, come with us, let us lie in wait for blood, let us ambush the innocent without reason, my son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths. Do not envy a man of violence. Don't think, wow, that was really cool. I've got to wrestle with this as I'm watching sports with my boys. There is... An excellent tackle, which is not violent, even though you picked a man up and shoved his head into the ground. The Bible wouldn't call that violence. There is sport in Scripture. But violence is when the helmets come off, and the gloves fly, and noses begin to get bloody. We've just entered into the realm of don't go there. That's foolish and wrong. Don't envy a man of violence and do not choose any of his ways, for the devious person is an abomination to the Lord, but the upright are in his confidence. So we educate on what good behavior is, we inform about what bad behavior is, and we explain the negative consequences of sin. If you get outside the circle of blessing, there's danger out there, and we're going to clarify what the danger looks like. But these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. What does it do? It takes away the life of its possessors. Do you want that? Do you want to go toward death? Do you want to go toward destruction? Do you want to go to the way that is only temporarily happy but will result in eternal ruin? Portray it for your kids. Portray it for your grandkids. For the lips of a forbidden woman drips honey, and her speech is smoother than oil. But in the end, in the end, if you go her way, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps follow the path to Sheol. She does not ponder the path of life. Her ways wander, and she does not know it. So we're clarifying the dangers of getting outside the circle of blessing where you honor and obey your parents. Level two, after the parent operates as a teacher, the parent operates as a warner. That is, you give warnings. Parents gently exhort in light of dangers. This would usually happen then, after the teaching has happened, the child's disobeyed. And now you're going to move one level higher, or on the chart, one level lower, deeper in your strictness. This exhortation may have some sharpness to it. 
in the way that you raise your voice, in the way that you address the seriousness of the sin. Hero, son, a father's instruction. Be attentive. Be attentive to me. Listen to me. Look at me in the eyes that you may gain insight. For I give you good precepts. Do not forsake my teaching. What I'm telling you is good. You do not run out into the road. You do not touch the hot stove. I am working for your good here. You have got to listen to me. Or, no, you need to fight this. You can't let your mind go there. That is unhealthy. You can't touch this. This is danger for you. You don't want... Turn your eyes away. You just watch that commercial. And that is unhealthy for you. You exhort them. Do not enter the path of the wicked and do not walk in the way of evil. Avoid it. Do not go on it. Turn away from it. Pass it on. For they cannot sleep unless they've done wrong. They're robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord. He ponders all his paths. The iniquities of the wicked ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of sin. He dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he's led astray. I'm warning you. I'm warning you. And I'm also going to warn that if you don't listen, there's going to be deeper levels of punishment. And that's where we move next. Level three, enforcement. Enforcement right off the bat, could come with, depending on age, it could look different things, but we're not talking about spanking yet. Corporal punishment is not what we're addressing here. We're talking about gentle rebukes and reproving. The Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father, the son in whom he delights. This This is the kind of discipline where we're now moving into the realm of this hurts. They've lost a privilege. They've lost their license. They're not allowed to do something that they once had freedom to do. Whenever whoever says to the wicked, you are right, will be cursed by peoples, abhorred by nations. But those who rebuke the wicked will have delight, and a good blessing will come from them. Rebuke can be the most loving thing you can do. But sometimes that doesn't work either. So we enter into the realm of spanking. Spanking is not anything that causes physical harm. It causes short-term pain. Spanking is not abuse. The Bible has a category for striking that is not hitting that is not punching, but striking in a way that awakens the senses in order to say danger is on the path where you're headed. Danger. And there's lots of questions related to spanking, and I encourage you to read the the last two pages of my notes where I unpack um, my friend, New Testament professor, one of our members, Andy Nacelli. He's written a wonderful article which originally was a sermon on child discipleship, child discipline. And this, the section on spanking, I simply summarized his notes that he gave in there, and it's very helpful in curbing responses that some people, questions that people have that helps give answer. But there is a place for corporal punishment, says Scripture. Discipline your son, for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. If you don't discipline him, death will come. This is the trajectory that he will be on. There is a category that says, spanking is not physical abuse, but not spanking very well is spiritual abuse. Because this is the means of grace. Whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. Folly is bound up in the heart of the child. And how do you dislodge it? 
The rod of discipline drives it far from him. Do not withhold discipline from a child. If you strike him with a rod, he will not die. If you strike him with a rod, you will save his soul from Sheol. This is the verse that suggests to me that this is not just a metaphor for discipline that is other than striking. But it actually includes a strike. It appears as though it was usually done with some kind of a a stick. What would that be equivalent to? Proverbs doesn't give clarity as to whether, does this mean that a parent couldn't use their hand? A wooden spoon. A spatula. My wife's parents had one of those very loud, it had two pieces so that when it hit the bottom it went slam! And it made lots of noise, but it didn't hurt at all. And so it was it just supposed to be a fear factor. I don't see that as the point. The point is actually supposed to be on the chubby part of the rump, it stings. When we had our babies, we, I mean, it, you never want to hurt anyone. There was one time in my life where I was hurt, where I had a bruise because of the way that my dad had struck me. And he came to me and asked forgiveness afterwards because he knew that he had operated in anger. Never is this portrayed as anything done in anger. This is never a dad or a mom's strength controlling, forcing upon this child anything. I really encourage you to read those two pages because it, it just um, it helps give a framework for understanding spanking in a culture that doesn't understand it. The rod and reproof give wisdom, but a child left to himself brings shame to his mother. Then there's a final category, and I'll just point to this. Serious sins can lead to serious punishment. When the sin of a youth begins to influence the welfare of the community and not just the family, all of a sudden, parental oversight is set aside and the government actually steps in. And the government has two steps as well. First of all, the government delivers extreme blows to punish and curb evil. Blows that wound cleanse away evil. Strokes make clean the innermost parts. The mouth of the righteous brings forth wisdom, but the perverse tongue will be cut off. These are the wounds that Paul received unjustly over and over again. Because he spoke when the government was telling him not to speak. The blows that wound. This is tricky. Look at this. The perverse tongue will be cut off. That's nothing a parent has the right to do. This is something that is at the government level. And then we come here, the death penalty. The Bible, I believe, confirms the need for the death penalty. There would be no cross. The seriousness of sin demands death. And the government is the agent of that, not the parent. Discipline your son, for there is still hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. That's the trajectory if you don't discipline him. If a man has a stubborn and rebellious son, this is Deuteronomy, who will not obey the voice of his father or the voice of his mother, and though they discipline him, he will not listen to them, then his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him out to the elders at the city gate of the place where he lives, and they shall say to the elders, This is our son. This our son is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey our voice. He is a glutton and a drunkard. This doesn't happen to eight-year-olds. This is a long haul of sustained disobedience. And now the rebellion of this child, the parents can't curb it, and it's having a negative influence on the community at large. Then all the men of the city shall stone this one to death. So you shall purge the evil from your midst." Whoever sheds the blood of a man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Then do what is good, and God will receive his approval. And you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, then be afraid. He does not bear the sword in vain, for he is the servant of God, an avenger of who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. That was a very big flyby. Discipline in Proverbs. The discipline of children. 
and then somewhat in a bigger perspective of Scripture. I really encourage you to read those two pages. There is a godly, God-honoring way to help our children, to sharpen our children, to guide our children. When my kids were babies, all it took was a couple taps on their rump, and all of a sudden they knew that they wouldn't, couldn't fly all over on the changing table. And what that meant is there wasn't poop flying everywhere. This was a good thing. It was for their good and they didn't fall off the table. It just took a few taps and they understood. They learned. I, when I'm put on this table, I stay there. And that's where everything begins. And then it carries right on up until they leave. And then moms and dads take on a new role. Let me pray. Father... These are big, big issues. Thank you that you give us words so that what I couldn't say could be written and they could continue to read and prayerfully consider how you would have them be moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas. Help them walk in the way of wisdom, I pray in Christ. Amen. It's intriguing that only moms and dads are called upon to spank. When I was... In fourth grade, I was put in a Christian school where the school spanked kids. I don't think that's biblical. It's never given. In the, it's, it's all because you need that trust. You need that relationship where the kid's able to affirm mom and dad. They know mom and dad love them. Go in peace. Thank you for listening to this message from the ministry of Dr. Jason DeRoshi. Associate Professor of Old Testament at Bethlehem College and Seminary in Minneapolis, Minnesota. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without written permission from Jason DeRoshi. For more information on Bethlehem College and Seminary, we invite you to visit online at bcsmn.org. For more information on Dr. DeRoshi, visit online at deroshi Meyer. Proclaiming the kingdom and treasuring a God who rules, saves, and satisfies through covenant for His glory in Christ.